Hello, sunshine. Hello, sunshine. Hello, sunshine. Gotta make hay while the sun shines. What's this? This is Hello, Sunshine. What if by sharing our stories, we could change the world? Welcome to Hello, Sunshine. I'm Kelly McCreary, and this is How It Is, the show where you hear women tell their own stories in their own words. We're unfiltered, real, and totally ourselves. This episode is all about escape. You're a queen. Watch Oxford English Dictionary describes escape as to break free from confinement or control. Hmm. I love that. I love that it doesn't define what we're escaping from, which, as we'll hear from our storytellers today, can be so many different things. Today, we're going to hear from three women who have each made their own escapes, and as a result, they've taken control of their lives and their narratives. The immigration advocate Fatuma Hussein, the YouTube star Takara Smith, a.k.a. Sailor J, and the comedian Cristela Alonzo. We're going to start with an extraordinarily brave woman whose story reminds me of how fragile our worlds are and how even when it seems like we've lost everything, we can find escape and solace in our community. Fatuma Hussein knows what it means to have to escape everything she knows. She was just 12 years old when war broke out in her native Somalia. She and her family ended up in a refugee camp in Kenya, then finally settling in Georgia here in the United States. She got married, started raising a family, and now lives in Lewiston, Maine, where she was part of the first wave of Somali immigrants to the state. Together with a small group of women, she founded the United Somali Women of Maine as a resource for other Somali refugee women to find support and help with acclimating to life in the U.S. My home in Somalia, growing up, my home was a very peaceful home. I'm the oldest of 13 children. When the war broke, uh, my parents and me got separated. I was, in, in this country, they said preteen, right? Um, 12, 13. I was visiting my extended family members, and the war broke. And so when the war broke, there was no way for me to join my family because everybody was fleeing all over the place. And so that's how I got separated from my family, my immediate family members. And so I ended up with my stepmother, and I ended up with my cousins. And while my family was fleeing to Ethiopia, we ended up going to Kenya. Nothing was normal anymore. So that, in that sense, you knew as a child even that something really sinister, something really bad is happening. People running all the time, people fleeing all the time, not having, you know, your home anymore, not having your belongings anymore. What I remember is, you know, us crowded, overcrowded on the back of this big open truck. They call it lorry, you know. It's a big truck and people are all over there falling from it. Um, There's just a lot of people. And what I remember clearly is 
you know, the second coming to Kenya, all of us and the car, the truck tipping over um, and a lot of people falling off the truck and then gunshots. So they pick us up and make us hide um, under these trees and other places so that we're safe and people, because there is, we are an act, in active war and so you can hear the gunshots and that never lived my, you know, my head. That image and that feeling of fear and smoke and gunshots and people scattered all over the place. And, and when I say people scattered all over the place, it's people scattered alive or people scattered you know, dead bodies scattered all over the place. It's just a very horrific image or memory to have. For me, I ended up in in a refugee camp, the first refugee camp that they set up for the Somalis in Kenya. Life in refugee camp was horrible. It was really was hard and yes I was still separated from my parents it was about 18 of us um, we were in Utanga refugee camp it was in the outskirts of Mombasa Kenya it was on the coast area in the coast area and what I remember is there was always violence all the time they will come in with machetes and they'll try to attack people. So much violence between the refugees and the natives who lived there because they did not want us to be there at all. For me, feeling safe came when I got resettled in Atlanta. When I came to Atlanta and I now came to a country that did not have war, but more importantly, a country that protects your rights. You know, I know we have our flaws and I know we have issues and I know there is, you know, racism and all kinds of crazy things happening in this country. I get that. But at the end of the day, you have laws that protect you. And for me, that, that felt safe. I had to be optimistic and see hope beyond what I was, you know, dealing with. And so uh, Georgia was, was my first hope of, of being safe. I came to Maine um, in 2001 and, you know, one or two families were coming to Maine and they said, hey, you all need to move to Maine because Maine is a good place. At the time, we had three Somali families that had just moved to Lewiston. And though I remember, we went in and they are jumping up and down. Where did you guys come from? Oh my God, we're so scared. We've been cooped in these apartments. We don't know what we're doing. Please tell people to come here. You know, they, again, Somalis are very much known for hospitality. Their hospitality, they welcomed us. They gave us tea, sambusa, food, pastries. They just entertained us and convinced us that Lewiston is the place to move to. Lewiston was getting a lot of Somali families. And, you know, they were coming by, I don't know, 50 today, 47 tomorrow, you know, 100 next week. It was just a lot of Somali families moving. As a refugee, I had experienced a lot of hardship. 
seeing the influx of the Somalis to Lewiston Auburn inspired me to see what I could do to help others. I knew most of our families were not English speakers. I also knew most of our families were dealing with um, so much hardship um, in terms of navigating the system, acculturating to this new society, new home. That made me and the other women I will work with for many, many years to come inspired us to start what we have today. And today, 17 years later, we are and the oldest ethnic community-based organization in the state. And, and it's a program that I'm very, very proud of. And for me, instead of um, having to sit and try to figure out all of my trauma and the hardships that I've gone through as a young person and as a woman and you know, an immigrant woman, a Muslim woman, I chose to use that experience and to make something positive out of it. It's so inspiring to hear about women like Fatuma who have escaped the worst and turned that journey into an opportunity to help others in need. Now, allow us to introduce you to Sailor J. Just don't get mad at us when you spend hours watching every single video she's ever created after this next story. Jakara Smith, a.k.a. Sailor J, is a 22-year-old YouTuber whose videos challenge the patriarchy and skewer expectations of femininity. One of our favorite videos pokes fun at all those makeup tutorials that teach young women how to contour their features to be more attractive to men. Through her videos, Chikara offers her viewers an escape from what we've all been told is how women should look and act. But in the process, Chikara also found an escape from something else. So what had happened was, let me tell y'all a story. So it's actually like almost exactly a year ago because it was like late October. I dropped a video called Contouring 101. Makeup is for women who want husbands. Contouring is for women who want to leech the souls of their dead lovers and collect the inheritance of their ex-boyfriends who disappeared under mysterious circumstances. If men find out that we can rearrange the bones of our face, we're finished. We might as well pack our it was a joke. It was like a political satire that was like masked as a makeup tutorial. And it was a joke. And I um, put it on YouTube because my Facebook was private. And my little sister was like, hey, none of my friends can see it because your Facebook is private. And I was like, okay. So I put it on freaking YouTube. And then it just, I like, man, it went viral. And I didn't think anybody was going to watch it. But then they did. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> like, because I look so dumb in this video. Like, I was, I'm so weird, like, in these videos because I'm weird as a human. But I didn't think anybody was going to fucking know that. Like, I didn't think anybody was going to see it. 
So then, like, people were like, hey, you should, you should, uh, you know, make some more. And I was like, fuck, man. So then, you know, this started. I don't know if you're supposed to put your contour on before the rest of your makeup or after the rest of your makeup, but it doesn't matter because men are stupid. So long as you look like a newborn baby, they are willing to mate with you. I'm the response to, to, like, contouring 101 and, like, getting a man in TNP, like, it was all, it made me feel good because it, people were telling me it was, like, easier to talk about. Like, it's easier to, like, open the discussion if you have, like, a reason to open the discussion. So if I'm like, hey, this random bitch on YouTube is, like, a nut job, like, but she's funny, and then you watch it, and you're like, she kind of had a point about XYZ, you can start talking about it with somebody, and it's less abrasive. Um, And so, like, I I did want to keep making them because people were, they liked them. I felt like I was helping. Like, I, I don't have straight teeth and, like, I don't have like Eurocentric features and like my hair is insane and, and all this other stuff. Like I came at Contouring 101 kind of from that perspective, like from that, like there's literally millions of you telling me how to be prettier or how to do it right. And like it, it makes like this weird pressure to like you do have to get it right because look at how many other girls get it right and look how many other girls are really good at it. And like this is like your hub. You know, this is, like, where women stay. Like, we do makeup tutorials on YouTube. Like, that's what we do. And that's what I would always hear people say about, like, girls on YouTube. That's how what I hear people talk about with girls on any platform. You hear guys bitch about girls on Twitch. You hear guys bitch about girls on YouTube. It's like we can't blink without there being some kind of, like, speculation or, or comment made about it. And so if there was anybody out there that felt like... I can't get this right. Like, I'm not on this side of the track because I don't know what the fuck I'm doing with, like, this palette or whatever the fuck it is. And I don't look like that at the end. I can watch this one and it'll just make me laugh and then I'll feel better. I think YouTube was, was a form of escapism for me because I started it at a time where I was, like, really, really lonely. I, I've never really had, like, a steady circle of, like, good, supportive like-minded people like in my lifetime actually now that i think about it it's always been interchanging on twitter and youtube i think i i clung to it so tightly because i post on youtube and then like there's like 50,000 people like talking to me right now like holy shit like i haven't fucking talked to anybody in like a week youtube for me was my form of escape in that like i found like connection like with other people and it doesn't even have to be like you don't have to be best friends you don't have to actually like know know like these people's darkest deepest secrets or whatever like i think that's what people misconstrue about social media is i think that older people think that or assume that we just supplement intense relationships for what's online and i think the truth is that people like what's online because it's just everyday human interaction. It's just like, hey, hi, here's a meme, blah, blah. You go to bed and like someone, you you interacted with somebody in the world today. The internet really has allowed us to connect with like-minded people we would otherwise never connect with. And escaping from loneliness, I mean, I'd, I'd consider that a win. You know, I've seen this firsthand in the online community of the fans of my show, Grey's Anatomy. I've seen people from all over the world, regardless of age, of race, and nationality, they connect over this show. There are pros and cons to the internet, but that community is definitely a bright spot for me.
Now we're going to meet another very funny woman, the comedian Cristela Alonso. How are you ever going to marry a nice man like Felix, huh? Which one is it, Mom? Marry a nice man or someone like Felix? If you were my wife, I would put poison in your coffee. <laughs> if you were my husband, I'd drink it. She is the first Latina woman to create, produce, write, and star in her own U.S. primetime comedy, Cristela, on ABC, which ended in 2015. She also stars in her own Netflix comedy special called Cristela Lower Classy. And Cristela and I did a play together. It was a wild ride. It was a brand new play that was written and performed in a single 23-hour period. I'm talking about start to finish. Written at hour one, performed by hour 23. So for 23 hours, Cristela and I were in the artistic trenches together, and we made this story about believing in magic and about having faith in love. So I can attest to her bravery and her warmth and her brilliantly collaborative spirit. Cristela's knack for comedy comes largely from her mother, who used humor to cope with poverty and the struggle to raise four kids alone. My mom was uh, one of the youngest in a family of, I want to say, 11 children. We were Catholic. And uh, she was born in uh, Mexico in a little rancho. And uh, my mom was born to a very old-fashioned family, the kind where she was taught that Men uh, were always dominant. They could do no wrong. And the women's job was to be submissive towards men. Also in her village, um, it was tradition that uh, the men would kidnap women to marry them. That's how it happened in the village. And that's what happened with my mom. So my mom was uh, basically taken by my father. And uh, they lived in Mexico for years and they ended up uh, coming here to the United States. And I do think my mom was a pioneer and a feminist by today's standards. She was really kind of more of a survivalist. Years after they had been married, my mom decided to leave my, my father because he wasn't a, a nice man. He was abusive towards her. And everyone was shocked. How dare she? How dare she? Dare she not take the abuse? That's what I couldn't understand. You know, how dare she have a better sense of herself and want better for her family? She left. She had nowhere to go. She had a second grade education. She couldn't speak English. She didn't know what to do. And she took us, her children, with her. And she just figured, I'll figure it out. This is what I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to figure it out. She was pregnant with me. I had never met my father, and she actually was so adamant when she left my dad. She said, your punishment for what you've done is to never meet your daughter, and I never met him. My mom had nowhere to go, no money. She ended up finding this abandoned diner in my hometown, San Juan, off of Nebraska Street, that uh, we ended up uh, living in. We were squatters, and we lived in this abandoned diner for about seven years, the first seven years of my life. And uh, my mom was a pioneer because she was the first woman to separate from her husband. And she was a feminist because she taught me at a very early age that I didn't have to depend on a man. So for me, she was a very strong woman that 
gave us everything when we had nothing. My mom had a great sense of humor. She was very sarcastic. Her sarcasm was like, I had asked her if I could go on spring break one year and go dolphin watching. And she was like, oh, no, go ahead. No, you're free. Do it. No, no. no one's stopping you. Your brothers can die of starvation. But you have fun. Let it do it. You know, like that was her sense of humor. And uh, I totally get it from my mom. I'll tell you, though, I'm not the funniest one in my family by any means. I think that together, my family, we're very funny. Where we grew up, so many of us lived well below the poverty line that comedy was actually our defense mechanism. So we're all very funny. Like the people that I grew up with in my neighborhood, which I lived in the hood, it was just we would make fun of serious things because we had no option. But when people were being funny, they would make you laugh over the like the saddest things and you didn't even know you were laughing at it. And I always say that my family did a great job through comedy of shielding me from the truth. Comedy for us has always been like our go-to. And even now, every time we hang out, you, you know, my brothers, they're in like their 50s and we hang out and it's like we're little kids again. We're just, we make jokes and it's just, and you know, my mom passed away in 2002 and I remember the funeral we could not stop laughing. Like, we all laughed because we were telling stories about her. And you would think that we were almost happy she was dead. <laughs> but we were just celebrating her life that we realized that's what we did as a family. Every time it was tough, we would make jokes. And that funeral was just, everybody kept talking about how good they felt when they left because we just had that comedy in our blood. I took care of my mom. She had a really hard last year of her life. There were nights when I would hear her just writhe in pain. And it made me feel so helpless because I couldn't make her laugh in the middle of the night. And I remember uh, when she got sick the last time, we ended up, we went to the hospital and nobody wanted to ride in the ambulance with her. And I rode with her in the ambulance so that I could help translate. And then when we got to the hospital, they took her off to surgery, and she uh, didn't recover. She was on the machines for a couple days, and the doctor told us there was no point. My brothers and my sister couldn't bear to be in the room with her. I couldn't either, but I felt like I had to because I felt like the only way to thank her for everything she had done was to be in the room with her when she took her last breath because she had been there when I had taken my first breath. After that, I was 22 years old at the time, and uh, my world just collapsed. I got very depressed, and I didn't know I was depressed. I was always raised to think, you're not depressed, life is hard. You know, so you just have to deal with it. So after my mom passed away, I got so depressed, and I had to get a job. And I ended up responding to this help wanted ad that was so vague. And I showed up to the location, and it was the comedy club in Dallas, the Addison Improv. The Improv, you know, I, when I worked at nights, I started having beers with people, and then that beer became five beers, and, you know, and, and I realized that it was numbing. And then I started thinking, you know, there's so many comics that come into town and tell me that, that they think I'm funny. Like, maybe I should do this. I never had a plan to do, be a stand-up comic. I had I didn't have a plan for anything. 
I mean, at this point, I thought my life was over. I didn't know what was next. I was just doing it as a hobby. But you know, what started happening is that the more I talked about my mom, the more people related to my mom. It meant to me that I was keeping her spirit alive and I was doing it with stand-up. So in a way, my mom's death is the one that really got me started in, in stand-up comedy. Had it not been for her passing away and me being so depressed and knowing, not knowing how to deal with it, I wouldn't be here if my mom hadn't passed away. So in theory, I feel like my mom sacrificed her own life so that I would have a chance to live a life that she was never allowed to have. And for me to think that it comes from comedy, I know that I carried on her legacy in some kind of way. So I was the first Latina to write, produce, and star in their own network sitcom show ever. And I was the first Latina to ever star in a Pixar movie, in Cars 3. And I don't say that because I'm trying to brag. My point in telling you this is to tell you that I got to this point in my life because I used comedy to escape the harsh reality that I was suffering through. And even then I didn't know I was suffering through it because my family used comedy to help me escape from that suffering. A lot of times it's very hard for me to use words like escape because to me they sound so dramatic and I'm so comedic that I try not to tie the words together. So understand that when I use the word comedy and I tell stories about how hard I grew up, I'm really trying to tell you how I survived. And I want to tell you that my comedy was really the only thing I had to really get by. So, you know, when we think about the word escape, we think about, you know, people that are trying to escape dire situations where life and death is at hand, you know, and we always think about it in a very physical kind of way. We always think about escape as literally escaping from something, you know, barking dogs that want to attack you, what have you, da, da, da. But really, my version of escape is all of that, but it was mental. It was having to escape the harsh reality that I was facing. And once I did that, I realized I had a power. I realized that I was powerful. Christella, I'm sure your mother would be so, so proud of you. You know, humor is such a powerful tool for helping us escape from the difficulties we face in life. We all have our stresses and our issues. We all have something we are escaping from. And I can't think of anything that literally feels like more of an escape than laughter. It just feels incredible when you have that can't-stop-cracking-up laughter. And it doesn't just feel good. Did you know that laughter is actually good for you? According to the Mayo Clinic, laughter can relieve stress by increasing oxygen flow to your organs and improving your circulation. It can even relieve pain by helping your body produce its own natural painkillers. It's amazing. So get out there and laugh till you snort, my friends. And hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hello Sunshine and use the hashtag HowItIs. Let us know what you think. Oh, and rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. Making moves in our time. We're back next week to talk about souvenirs. From the objects we carry with us all of our lives to the scars we carry from giving life. Hilary Frank, the creator of the parenting podcast The Longest Shortest Time, has quite a story on what she kept after giving birth. 
You're really mangled down there, she said when she examined me. The way you were put back together is off. On this episode of How It Is, you heard from Fatima Hussein, Chakara Smith, a.k.a. Sailor J, and Cristela Alonzo. I'm Kelly McCreary. I am an artist, a producer, and sometimes I'm a funny lady. How It Is is a production of Hello Sunshine. It is executive produced by Amy S. Choi, Charlotte Coe, Rebecca Lehrer, and Reese Witherspoon. Our senior producers are Kara Hart and Michelle Lands. Our development producer is Mary Philip Sandy. Sound designed by Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our theme song, Queen, is written and performed by Victoria Canal. I think it's because I'm sitting in Kyra's doll seat that I feel like I'm reporting the news now. 